I suffered very much from the very real issues. I was very grounded in how hard it was and how much I missed him and all that. But I also was aware that the journey is exactly what Anushaman needs. That awareness was there. I could not ignore that. Hello, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Season 2 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Shani and Dovi Narboni in honor of their children, Menachem Mendel, Aaron, and Levi. Today's episode is also sponsored by Leah Roboshkin and is dedicated to her dearest sister, Chaya Mushka Bas Fega Elka. She writes, it is in tribute to your exceptional nurturing love. May you feel it and know it always. Thank you to our sponsors, the Narbonis and Roboshkins, for making today's episode happen. Episode sponsorships literally keep this podcast running, and we have some dedication opportunities coming up. If you'd like to sponsor an episode in honor of a birthday, a yard site, or someone you love, please visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at humanandholy at gmail.com. Today, Devorah Kreiman welcomes us into her life story, much of which has not been simple. How does she navigate the pain and grief that has been a constant companion in her life? As she'll tell us, the process is never ending, and yet she shares it with so much joy. Join us for a moving chronicle of the human beings wrestle with tragedy. My name is Devori Kreiman, and my husband and I got married in 1986. That's a lot of years ago. We had three healthy children within three years. When I was pregnant with my fourth child, we had no reason to worry. But when he was born, he was a little bit underweight. And other than that, he looked perfect, except that he was a little bit weak. And the doctor said that they weren't sure why and probably he'll do fine. But instead, he kept getting sicker and sicker. and Nobody really knew what it was. And we actually went to the Rebbe for bracha. And the Rebbe gave us a bracha for a healthy child, but wouldn't give any, anything for this baby. When he was about three and a half months old, he died. And the doctors told us, they said that it's probably something they call failure to thrive, which is just a name for, we don't know what it is, but he didn't do what a healthy baby is supposed to do. And there was no reason to worry about future children. So we had another baby. That baby started to present with similar symptoms. And that's when we realized that we have an issue with a hereditary disorder, but the doctors still didn't know what. What my babies had basically was that they looked perfectly normal, but they couldn't produce energy. A part of the body, the mitochondria that produces energy, was missing an enzyme. We did have a healthy child in between. We named her Bracha, for the Rebbe's Bracha. Mm. And then we had two more children who were sick. And so for many, many years, I divided my kids into four and four. I had the four healthy children and the three that I had before, and then my daughter Bracha, Bracha Lea. And then I had the four kids who were sick who had died. And we worked with it. We dealt with it. I went back to school. I got very busy with Chinuch. And then when my kids got older, my, my kids started to get married and my Yossi, my oldest, my only son, 
he was the kind of kid, he, he was a learner. He liked to learn a lot. He was a very nerdy kid. He loved nature. He was fascinated by that. And he liked his mother, very much a mama's boy. He loved to look at stars. And so he was hired as a learning director in Costa Rica. And when they were there, they took the kids on a trip scuba diving. And my Yossi just fell in love with it. So when he came back home, he actually got engaged. And at the same time, he was interested in just going onto the water, not even for the adventure of it. He wasn't like an adventurous kind of a kid, but he was really, really fascinated by the, what was going on, the life underwater. So he started to go scuba diving, started taking lessons. And there was just one day that he wasn't careful with, it was just a valve, a safety thing. And his instructor told him, oh, just disconnect it because it wasn't working properly. And he did. And I was the principal of a school at that point. And I remember when we got the phone call and we went to the hospital. My husband called and said, yes, he's been in an accident. And we ran to the hospital and the whole way to the hospital, I took it to Hillam with me, but I couldn't even say to Hillam, I was so frozen. And I kept saying one thing again and again and again and again. I kept saying, this is not the babies, this is Yossi. Because in my head, it was very, very clear. We have the four babies and they were sick and they died. And we have the four healthy children and they're the four healthy children. When we got to the hospital, they told us to come into a small room, which is usually not a good sign. And then they said, we did everything we could and we're so sorry. And that was it. We, we lost Yossi. So my life has become about grappling with everything that was real before that is still real, but owning it and living with it. And I'll give you an example. The day that Yossi died, Yossi died on Chav Ches Cheshven. If you look at the Hayyam Yom of Chav Ches Cheshven, that morning I had been in school, I was a principal, so I liked when all the whole school dopened together and I would do the Hayyam Yom for the whole school. So I get up and I teach the Hayyam Yom that morning before I knew anything. In fact, earlier that morning, we had been on the phone with a jeweler in Montreal, actually, because we were trying to get a specialized ring for Yossi's collar. And we were actually joking with him because the collar wanted a ring that looks like it doesn't have prongs around it. Like it looks like it's suspended, like floating. It's called a tension setting. And I remember my husband was joking with the guy and saying, well, it's going to make a lot of tension if this diamond starts floating. And so we decided <laughs> we're going to ask the collar as much as it's very artsy, we would rather have a more secure diamond ring. He was our only son. So it was the only time that we had bought a diamond ring. So I was, you know, I was teaching Hayyem Yom and the Hayyem Yom of Cheshven is that it's a concept of Ashkacha Pratis, that if even a blade of grass doesn't move by accident, there's no such thing as an accident. And if a blade of grass that moves in, in a breeze is part of the master plan from the time the world was created, then how much more so the movement of a human being? And if you had stopped me in the hallway right after I taught that and said, what you just taught now, do you believe in it? And I would have said, of course, Ashkaka Pratis, every movement, there's no such thing as an accident. And a few hours later, there we were with my son in an accident, but there's no such thing as an accident. So that was the process. And it started immediately because when we came home, it was Friday, it was very, very close to Shabbos by the time we got back from the hospital. And I had to bench licht. So I come home and we had already set the tables. We had set a place for Yossi. So there's his seat and his becher and there's the candles. And I light 10 candles. So I light for my eight children and I light for, you know, me and my husband. And then I also had added years ago, I had taken on to add two oils because it's a school of first son who's a Tamad Chacham. And yes, it was a Tamad Chacham. And I came home from the hospital. It was minutes and we just walked in and there's it's Lich Benchen, and there's these 10 candles and these two oils. And I remember thinking, I can't light. I just, I can't light. And I also knowing at the same time that I'm going to light because I have to light. And I remember how much my hand shook. It sounds hard to believe that it was such a difficult mitzvah. It's just candles, but it was the hardest mitzvah for me at that moment to light 10 candles. I'm thinking, I have eight children. Most of my children are dead. And I'm lighting oils. And my son, 
the Talmud Chacham is dead. I have Baruch Hashem, three healthy daughters, but the candle symbolized the children, and it hit me at that time. And that was the beginning of that road, of doing what we know we can't do, and recognizing that it's bigger than us. We don't do mitzvahs because they're easy, or because we feel inspired. It's wonderful when it's nice, and you know, it's a mitzvah that lifts us up, but we do mitzvahs because Hashem commanded, and this is how we connect with Hashem. Wow. I have no words. I feel like you summed up years-long journey of your life in in such a short amount of time. And you said you kind of had this like distinction in your head between the four sick babies and then your four healthy children. What was the journey like with your four sick babies? Was there a journey there too? Because you just kind of like say, oh, that was the four sick babies. But I'm like, the four sick babies, like your babies, your children, what was what was that? And then we'll move more current to what you're currently experiencing after the loss of your son. So it was a period of 10 years. And there's a lot to it because it was it was a messy time for me. I was very young when the first sick child, I was 24. And wow. there was one time when one of my babies was in children's hospital. They never came home from the hospital. They were very sick. We tried with one of them. We almost got her home. It was months, but the step down, they tried to stabilize her enough to bring her home with intensive care, but it didn't work out. She just couldn't handle She couldn't get stable. But what happened was I walked into the hospital to visit my baby and I had to go every day. And I went in, so before I went up to the NICU, where she was at that time, I went first into the bathroom. And when I got into the bathroom, there was a sign and it said, baby changing station, you know, with a changing table. And I saw that and something went on in my head. And I said, oh yeah, that's what I need. I need a baby changing station. I want to change my baby for a baby that works. And I started to cry. I had like this weird fit in this bathroom and I'm crying by this baby changing station and I'm crying, Abishter, I want to change my baby. You know, I want a baby that works. And after a while, I got myself together. I washed my face. I went upstairs and I had to do the whole scrubbing up. My kids were very, very fragile. So the whole, uh, the robe and the gown and the scrub to the elbow and the whole deal. And then I had to ask permission from the respiratory therapist and the nurse, two people to lift her with the trach, with the tubes, with everything. Finally, I'm sitting and I have my baby in my arms. And she was still strong enough at that point. It was probably a reflex because she was pretty far gone slipping away, but she, she wrapped her little tiny fingers around my finger. You know how babies do that? Mm. And I looked down at her and I thought, she has her neshama journey and I have my neshama journey. And that's insane. I know it sounds ridiculous to say we don't change our babies, but it's as ridiculous as if your kid acts up in class and you tell the Rebbe, I don't want that kid. I want a kid that's not acting up, but to change my child. We understand this is your child. This is your journey. And as simplistic as this sounds, it's really a very deep lesson, which is that the children that we get or every interaction in our lives is a neshama interaction. And it became very, very clear to me at mm. that time as I'm holding her that she has a journey. It's going to be short. She was already dying. And I have a journey as her mother. It's very much a neshama story. That said, I do want to say that after our fourth child, it became complicated once we realized that we have a hereditary issue and the issue of having more children was very big. And we spoke to Rabbanim, we spoke to doctors. And after we had our fourth child that was sick, I knew when that child died that that was going to be the last baby. And I was still young and it was incredibly, incredibly painful. And I learned something really important about it because I felt like a terrible person. I couldn't look at babies. I couldn't look at pregnant women. I couldn't look at a baby bottle. And I felt like I'm jealous but then I started to work with a lot of people. People would call me all the time if they lost, quote, only one child. 
and I had mm. lost four, it gave them courage, I guess, to hear from someone who lost four and was still breathing, you know? So, and a lot of them would say the same thing, which is, I can't look at another pregnant woman. I must be a bad person. And a Rav came to our house once. It was a, a widow, widower. And he told me that he has trouble looking at married couples. And I recognized it's not jealousy. It's a very raw pain. So I had to work through that very, very much. It was really hard for me to accept it. At a certain point, I went back to school. I got degrees. I went into Chinuch. But it wasn't an instant transition. And it wasn't, I made it flip and light because Yossi's death really overshadowed in a way because we had gone through after mm. the babies died. It was like 12 years of, I was always the woman who lost half her children and had come through it. And it was kind of a little inspiring that I, you know, in my own life, I grappled. People on the outside say, oh, it's so inspiring. But I knew the messy work of mm. accepting that it was going to be the four children and they have to be enough. And that's a terrible thing to say. I don't mean to be flip, but the fact that this is my family. This is what Hashem wants for me. And I always thought of it as the four and the four. Not that I have four children, but that I have four children and I have four neshamas who needed me and my husband for a very short journey. Right. So it was a lot of struggle. And I remember also at one point sitting in the hospital, we had another meeting with the doctors. We, we were talking about the mitochondria, the testing. We tried a lot of things during those 10 years. We became involved in the mitochondrial foundation and we did the testing of our whole family made everybody pluck hairs and send it to Europe and send it here. We did a lot, a lot of pretty intensive research. We became part of a few studies. And I was thinking, this is such a waste of time. My kids at home need me. I could be giving shiurim. I could be hosting guests. They need me at school. So many important things that I could be doing, and I'm sitting here. And it took me a while to really accept that this is where Hashem wants me. This is how I serve Hashem now. You know, we don't serve Hashem always on our terms. Hashem wants me here in this hospital talking to these people about these things. So as much as it felt to me like a very frustrating, stupid time in a way, because there were so many meetings and most of them were pretty much fruitless. We didn't come up with anything. But Hashem wanted me to gain a certain sensitivity, certain trust, a certain belief in bigger. And the babies really gave me that sense of neshama. We don't walk around thinking about mm. neshamas coming in on purpose. We deal with our kids as we just deal with our children or our lives. But I didn't have that. I had to deal with them as neshamas. And it, it really opened up a sensitivity. Yeah. One more thing that my babies gave me that was very crazy. I was holding my baby once and I had this thing, I thought, and I thought, I have to show up every day. I have to come here. I have to hold her because even though she's dying, a human voice and a human touch is comfort and she's here and she deserves that comfort. It was two boys and two girls, but the girls lived longer. So a lot of the stories were with my girls, but... They need that nurturing and that comfort. They're here. And I'm the mother. And it's also important for the hospital staff to see that these children have, you know, somebody who cares about them. So I have to show up. I have to do mine. But I'm never going to get a thank you. You know, we talk about parenting. And some people say you give unconditionally. You don't give unconditionally. I had healthy children. They smile at you. They call you mommy. They're delicious to hold. There's all that. My babies, they were beautiful when they were born. They actually looked like perfectly normal babies. They even had a lot of hair. People were surprised. They're so sick, but they have a lot of hair. But as they got sicker and sicker at the hospital and this, the medications, it was harder. It wasn't like you looked at them and wanted to just scoop them up and hug them. They did have mm. certain changes that they went through because of the illness. And I was holding this baby who to me was still very beautiful because she was so pure. And I was thinking, she's giving me such a gift. And I want to be honest. I was angry. I was jealous. I was anxious. I had all of those feelings. But at that moment, I had something a little bit transcendental. I just had this moment where I looked at her and I thought, she's giving me the gift of explaining to me, like she's teaching me. What does it mean to give unconditional love 
to love with no expectation of anything back. It's very unusual. And it gave me just a sense of something bigger. Wow. I didn't walk around for years saying, thank you, Hashem, I'm so lucky I'm able to give unconditional no, love. Right. It was a moment. It was a flash. But it was there. Yeah. Yeah. It's really powerful because when you look at a baby, you do get that sense of just like an ashama in a body. Like they have this like otherworldly scent almost when they come down here. So that idea that you were a mother that was just holding that neshama in its body for as long as Hashem sent them down here is really powerful. Yeah. So I see how like you're saying that your your son Yassi's passing totally overshadowed everything that happened. It was also years later. You had so many years to process were there any tools that you gained in that time that you were able to utilize? Or was it just such a different type of loss that there was no connection between the two in your mind? So it really worked two ways. There were a lot of tools because we put it into a few words, but it was a very big struggle to accept the plan that Hashem has and the concept. I really was sensitive to this sense of bigness that, you know, it's easy to come into this world and either because of the challenges or the distractions to really forget that it's really about something bigger. We're not here to build empires or have a good time. So the babies really gave me that and that stayed with me for Yossi. The problem was, and it made it much, much harder when Yossi died, I was so shocked and really stuck, shocked. And and I want to say angry, but it's a very soft word for what I went through. I could not Mm. believe that on top of that, this had happened. That was one of the oh. biggest struggles for me. And it wasn't, when I talk about right. being angry, I wasn't fuming or having fits. It was a very quiet, much more dangerous rage. I would open a sitter and I would see like Az Yashir about the drowning and I would just close it. Like I was stuck. I was, I didn't go to work. It was a job that I loved. I was a principal of a school. They needed me. But I didn't go. I was just stuck in a very, very frightening place because I could not believe that after that with the babies, this had happened, something else. I was the woman who lost half her children. How many people can say that? And then here I was. So yes, I had learned a lot. I had learned, I always talk about how, you know, I, I travel a lot to speak. So I'm davening many times in airports. So you do shmanesra in front of people, you know, you're banging your heart and you're bowing. And it's like, you become much more aware of it. So I remember mm. becoming aware of the bowing. Like, what is the bowing? We take everything that we think, my head, my thoughts, what I want, what I think is the best way. Like I said before, like, I didn't want to waste time in the talking to doctors. I can do better things. All my thoughts about how to be a better Jew, and we, we just lower our heads. So I had that concept. I was very aware of the bigger picture of Neshama journey. But what stopped me from accessing it was really that sense of, it sounds very childish, it isn't fair. <laughs> Meaning I yeah. did mine. I already had my big test. It was a wow test. And it wasn't mm-hmm. the only test in my life. And when we all come to life with stuff, I had gone through things. I had battled for certain things. And here I was with this. So I had to really surmount that. Mm. And during my first year after Yossi, when I was kind of doing nothing else, if you would have asked me what I did that year, I would have said nothing. Mm. And later I realized I did something very, very, very important because I wrote and it turned into a book, which Mr. Shem is coming out in Elo. And I called the book, Even If I'm Not, which really summed up the whole story. Because when Yossi was a little boy, I think it was maybe six or seven, he came down one day in the kitchen. I was rushing to get all the kids out to school. It was a busy morning. And I just like called over to him and I said, Yossi, there's bagels on the counter if you're hungry. And he said to me, even if I'm not. And I said, what? And he was like that kind of a kid. So he said to me, well, you said there's bagels on the counter if I'm hungry. The bagels are not Mm. on the counter if I'm hungry. (laughs) They're on the counter even if I'm not hungry. So that became like a family line, even if I'm not, meaning it's there anyway. 
I would go shopping and the salesperson says something like, hi, my name is Anna, if you need anything. And it would jump into my head. But Yossi said, your name is not Anna, if I need anything. Your name is Anna. Mm. So mm. after Yossi died, I remember that concept of it's there anyway. I was so frozen. And after a while, it took me a while. I remember it was a Shabbos when it finally dawned on me that all the answers, the strength, the resources, the comfort, it's there. It's ready. It's waiting, even if I'm not. And mm. so just that concept of it's already there. We have to just bring ourselves to it. I wasn't searching for truth. I knew truth. I knew the concept of Nisham. I knew that. I just had to allow it in. And that became my work. Make it real. I believe in Ashkacha Pratis. But to the extent that I can function now, even though my son died by accident, which I know isn't accident, and let go of that concept of if only he'd been more careful, if only we'd insisted that he rent equipment instead of borrowing it, if only, if only. So making it real, that was the work. Because it was all there. I didn't have to learn that there's an Hashem and there's a purpose or that Hashem is in charge or any of those things. We learned them. We grow up with them. And I had grappled with it by the babies. I had to live it. It was a very, very big struggle. It still is. Yeah, I would love to hear about what that process was like because we learn a lot about the truth, the objective truth, and then about the pain of human experience. But what that bridge is, is something that we don't always see. I would love if you could share how you bridged that divide between your absolute, like it's a mind boggling experience for a mother. And then knowing these truths and how you are seeking right now in your life to bridge those two things. I don't think that you cross it once and get there. There's no point of arrival. Right. It's really a constant. I had to do it again and again and again and again. Part of it was that I did get some help. I went to an excellent therapy called EMDR, which works with lights. It was very interesting to me because Yossi's first word was light. Actually, he mm. said da and pointed to the light and we thought he was very smart, but he loved light. And so I went actually, I think that part of the spiritual really is that you have to take care of the emotional, psychological, physical. Right. So I did need to have that help and that EMDR and the EFT, which is tapping and with affirmations. And that was the beginning of the road. I actually took my daughter, my brachalea, who it's interesting because she was such a blessing when she was born. Every child is, but we were too blind. I had three kids in three years, but Yossi's up sure and I had three kids. But when my brachalea mm -hmm. was born, she was one in the middle of those all the, she was uh, two babies and her and then another two babies. And I was so profoundly grateful. And later after Yossi died, my two girls were not home anymore. They were both married. And here I had my teenager and that forced me forward. So that miracle was clear again. Had she not been in the house, although my husband deserved a functioning wife, but with all that, she forced me in a way. So there was that level of function, that, but that was a more superficial function. The deeper function, which is what I think you're asking was really very, very slowly. Part of it was I had no choice. I really had no choice. And Hashem helps. It's kind of crazy. You know, when Yossi died, that whole Shabbos was a very, very transcendental Shabbos because we couldn't start Shiva yet. People didn't know yet. My family didn't know yet. Some people in the community knew because the word got out in the community, but we hadn't started anything and yet Yossi wasn't there. And I remember standing at the window looking out at the clouds that entire Friday night. And then we went into Shiva, but at the end of Shiva, something happened that really, that was the beginning. Hashem sends these miraculous reminders because a few months before it was Simchas Torah, Yossi had been dating. So Simchas Torah, Shidduch had come up in New York. Actually, it was his first one. And we were very, very excited because two different people had called with the same Shidduch and it just seemed so perfect. So he was going to go to New York right after Yom Tiv. He was flying Matzai Yom Tiv to meet this girl who he ended up getting engaged to. And so that's Simchas Torah, my husband, he's a male. So he had a bris. He was going to do on Yom Tiv morning, 
and then he was going to walk back to us. So he wasn't home. The, the first night of Yom Tov, he drove there before was actually Shemini Atzeres, and he was going to do the rest of the morning and walk back. So that first night of Shemini Atzeres and Chastara, it was only me and Yossi and my daughter, Brachaleah, who was 15. So we go to Shul, and Yossi's dancing. And he was a quieter kid. He wasn't so outgoing, but he was very, very nervous and excited because he was going to start dating right after. He had a new suit, a new hat. And I was watching him dance. And most of the people in the show were older because a lot of the Brahim go to New York for, for Tishrei, but he was going right after. So he was still home. So he was dancing. He was so light on his feet. Like for every step that the, these men took, a lot of them were middle-aged and older. Yossi was doing two steps. He was like flying on air and I'm watching him. And I was filled with such joy and he's dancing. And every once in a while, he would disappear a little bit. I figured he was kibitzing in the back and he'd come back. At about midnight, I came to get him. I wanted to go walk home. We live about 15 minutes from the shul. And I come to get him, and he comes to the mechitza. And his face is like all red, and he's a little sweaty. But, you know, my husband doesn't drink, and Yossi never drank. So I didn't really know what I was looking at. And I said to him, Yossi, let's go home. And he's like drawling a little bit. He's like, I'm having happy juice. Because he was the, he liked to talk in that way. He's like a funny, quirky kind of kid. And I said, okay, but, you know, we have to go home. No, no, I want to stay. I want to have happy juice. I said, how are you going to get home? I was worried. It's already at midnight. So one of his friends, who looked even more far gone than him, comes to the machitza and says, don't worry, Mrs. Kreiman, I'll bring him home. And I, I laugh now because I don't know why I thought it was a good idea to have one drunk kid bring home another shikra kid. But, I, okay, I left them. I went home. But by one in the morning, Yossi wasn't home, and I got nervous. So I walked back to the show with my daughter. And by then it was like getting really late. The dancing was completely over. And I had to like, there was a bunch of slumped over like jackets in the back of the room, you know, like these guys were far gone. And I find Yossi and he hadn't handled his liquor very well. So it was a little bit of a mess, you know, and I shake him by the shoulder and I'm like, come Yossi, we have to go. We have to go. And he was such a Hasidish nerd. He's like, I need to drink. I can't drink out of the sukkah and water. So he drinks and he's drunk, but he's, you know, he remembered that. Finally, I get him to come outside with me. And all of a sudden it was like by now, maybe two in the morning. It was a very, very cool air outside and it gave him like a fresh wind and he gets like all perky and he starts to shout at the top of his lungs he's shouting and he's say he's screaming the name of the girl that he's dating and he's shouting flight number whatever from LA to New York and he starts running up and down the street like he's an airplane literally flapping his hands and then he starts somersaulting on the sidewalk, the filthy sidewalk. And I have to get Whoa. him home. Yeah, it's the middle of the night. We're, you know, I have to get him home. So I'm like, at some point it was frustrating. I said, Yossi, you're impossible. So he picks himself up. He says, I'm not impossible. I'm possible. I'm possible. And the rest of the way home, he's like dancing in front of me, calling out to me, I'm possible. Anyway, we get him home, finally get him to rest. The next morning, he has to go to Shul in his Crocs and his weekday suit and his old hat because he had wrecked everything. But sorry, Shabbos, I mean, it's sorry, Yom Tov, he flies to New York. Shidduch goes. By his shiva, it was the last day of shiva, and it was a Friday. And I remember I was sitting outside and I was thinking, a whole week people were coming, and I just told myself, when all these people leave, I am going to somehow check out. I'm not going to get up and continue. I didn't know how and what. Doctors, pills, I didn't know. I was afraid to think, but I kept thinking, I'm not going to survive this. I was sure. It was just a question of what's going to happen. I thought maybe I'll just quietly stop. I didn't know, but I was definitely not planning. I was just waiting for everybody to go away. And here it was, the end of shiva, and really my mind was going to a pretty dark place. And I knew, I, I, it, scared my, it scared me, you know, when your own thoughts scare you. So I turned to the woman next to me. It was like the, was the last hours of Shiva, so there was very few people left. And we were sitting on a patio right off my, my living room. And I needed to just stop thinking. I knew as, as angry as I was and as stuck as I was, I knew that you cannot think this way. And I didn't know how. So I turned to her. Her name is Judy. She's a singer. And I said, Judy, sing something. And she got like completely thrown. Sing something. 
So I said, yes, sing. I have to hear a song. And the men were inside, so that wasn't the problem, but sing something? So she didn't know what to do. So she turns to like the woman next to her and says, what should I sing? What should I sing? The woman next to her was one of my students. And the two of them had actually performed in one of the Robin Garbo's films. It was like these Jewish films. So she says, what should I sing? What are there, millions and millions of songs in the world? So Rivka comes up and she just says, sing this and this song from this thing. Of all the songs in the world, here's what Judy sings to me. It's possible. It's possible. Everything is possible. Just keep your eyes upon your goal or keep your mind upon your goal and turn to God with all your soul. And I heard those words and I thought about Yossi in the night and he's dancing. I'm possible. And I said this to Judy many times. It's with those words that I got up from my shiver chair. I pulled myself up. And the truth is, Yossi didn't say it's possible. He said, I'm possible. And that's really the truth. It's not possible. But we are possible. We have neshamas. We have infinite resources. We are a part of Hashem. And when we tap into that, so we see things from a different set of eyes. We're thinking soul. And I don't want to sound like some kind of a very high and holy, out of touch. I suffered very much from the very real issues. I was very grounded in how hard it was and how much I missed him and all that. But I also was aware there's no way not to be because when you're very close with someone, and they're not here anymore, you still stay connected. A mother is a mother forever. And so when you ask, what was it? It was really that awareness that Yossi's soul existed, that I have the resources because we are possible, that my neshama, I don't want to say signed up for this because I chased a lot of Rabbanim and tried to get a lot of answers about that. Do we know before? Do we pick our children? And it's, it's not a world that we have very clear as far as all those answers about neshamas choosing their own parents. And, but I know that our neshamas do agree to the journey and that the journey is exactly what Anushaman needs. So that awareness was there. I could not ignore that. You can't learn chassidus and not recognize that we're not just in this world to have comfortable and easy or a couple of challenges and then we get back up and on we go and happily ever after. It's not how it works. And that sense of awareness, it was very, very real to me. The other part was I didn't want to let Yossi down. Yossi was such a happy lovely child. And the Rebbe has answers about how too much grief, somebody sent me a letter. And of course, I was very angry. How dare she send me the letter? But the truth is, in the letter, the Rebbe writes that prolonged grief really isn't good for the neshama. The neshama feels the pain of it. And the beginning, I was so angry. I was like, good, let him. That'll teach him. You know. But the truth is, it doesn't work that way. And truth is truth. Truth is truth when it's easy to see or when it's inspiring. And truth remains truth when we're hurting. There's like that thread that you're sharing about the neshama being on the journey. Your four small babies, Yassi, and then you yourself also on a journey with Hashem. Like you said, that the neshama agrees to the journey of life. And even if it's not in this way that we can consciously feel in our world, but just knowing that is so meaningful. I would love to hear a little bit about the nitty gritty of, we spoke about that general, beautiful concept of the fact that we're possible because we have a neshama and therefore it is possible for us to do the impossible. What does it look like on a really practical level to be grieving, to be in so much pain, and yet to be able to like integrate this idea that the neshama is on a journey, that you're on a journey, that your son's soul is on a journey? What has that looked like for you? To make it more interesting because <laughs> life is so interesting, we became grandparents the week that we finished Kaddish for Yossi. So it was all in one. And 
that was our first grandchild. And he was, he was born in London. And my daughter knew during the pregnancy that it was a boy and gifted us with letting us know. And it wasn't just that, but she know, and we knew the name. We knew that he would be not only Yosef, but he would be Yosef Mayer. And Mayer was my grandfather, who I had been very, I'd been very close with, who was a Holocaust survivor, who had actually also, they were my inspiration because they were both very young, my grandparents, during the war. And then they lost most of their family and they got married in the DP camp. It's a long story. But the bottom line is they lost after the whole Holocaust, after everything that they lost, they lost a child in the DP camp. And the horror of loss after loss was something that I really, I, maybe it was just because my neshama knew I was going to have something like that. But I remember as a teenager, once I heard about it, I could not let it go. I couldn't believe wow. it. And that, so my grandfather, Mayer, I always wanted to have a son, Mayer. And I had, after he passed away, I had two more sons, but they were both very sick. And because they were boys, we didn't name them right away. So we didn't ever name for him. So here I knew that we're going to finally have a Mayer that I had wanted for so long, a baby, how much I craved babies. But he would be named for Yossi. So I remember that, and I was so anxious in general about the pregnancy and also so excited. And one of the things when you ask how it looked, you know, the Tanya, it says in Tanya about how we can have joy and sadness, joy lodged on one side of the heart and sadness lodged on the other. I understood that in a very real way to have both. And because I had done the EMDR and I understood how to have affirmations and I understood already not to, you hear this a lot, but not to feel bad about feeling bad meaning to allow it. I did a lot of self-talk. I remember telling myself, no child wants a sad grandmother. You don't want to be a sad bubby. And yet I was sad. So I fought with that. I remember that I missed the labor and delivery because it was born a little earlier. I had a ticket to go the next week. But as soon as the baby was born and I got ready to go, and I remember that I went, I stopped at a nail place to have my hands treated with paraffin because I wanted that when I hold my grandson, my hands should be very soft. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, it's an external thing, but I'm preparing. I'm, these are the hands of a bubby. So I would do a lot of things like that. But then I also remember that as much as we knew and as much as we wanted, and by the way, the bris had to be rescheduled the last minute, the place where it was supposed to be was changed. And because it was in London, I was busy with my daughter and busy taking care of everybody. So I didn't even pay attention to where the bris was. And the morning of the bris, because my son-in-law has a very small car. So I walked with my daughter, Brachaleya, and with the baby, we walked him to his bris. So they gave us the address. They didn't give us the name of the place. And when I walked up with a carriage, I look up and it's a beautiful big shawl. And on the wall, it says, and this is the name of the building. It was a Sephardic building. And I'm thinking I'm coming here. And of course, I was busy with my daughter with this delicious baby. And then they, they named him. And at the moment that they named him, I had this terrible, just this, this horrible feeling. I, 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 had to, I wanted to, I didn't do it, but I wanted to run into the men and scream, take it back. Because as soon as you give a name for someone, I mean, that's very, very definite. And mm. then I thought, but this is my grandson. And coming to finally a baby in the family and finally a, and a simcha, and yet I get a grandson and he's named for my son. So to be honest with you, there was a bitterness there. And there was also a profound joy that I think was deeper than typical for a grandmother, both. I don't mm. do things halfway, you know? And so the best way to deal with it for me was just to acknowledge it. I didn't push it away. I didn't tell myself, what kind of grandmother, like, you know, feels like that. You should be, you know, jumping for joy. And I was, but I also, I tried to make room and there was a lot of that. So the way that I did it practically literally was a moment at a time. I would be feeling something and I would try, I would make room. Some of it was just plain therapy tools, psychology of just allow yourself emotional space, so I did make room and I would say, you're feeling right now, you're feeling bitter. And yet there's a love that is so intense. And I think the gratitude, 
again, it sounds cliched, but it's, it's very, very deep when there's loss. And you can really have both at the same time. And I have that a lot. It was the same thing with the sharpest candles because it took me a long time to be able to light candles without feeling like it's just, you know, how, how do you light candles? The candles are about our children and our family and my family looked like this. And now it's become now those same two oil lights. I light them and I call them my Ghanaian candles because I learned in Tanya that on Shabbos, the Shabbos get like a Shabbos treat. And we're Shredish, mm. you know, they get like access and they like an elevator up into the place where they can learn with the Malachim and Sadiqim. So to me, it's very real. Those are the Ghanaian licht. Did I jump into it automatically? Not at all. And I go in and out. It's really moment by moment. And sometimes I'm struggling and I say, okay, this is hard. People see me and I don't think I project heavy. But when somebody asks me how many children I have, I, even now, and even with all the answers, I have some funny answers. I have some, you know, all kinds of things. And yet it will throw me every time because I had worked so hard. Yeah. After the babies, I was like, how many children do I have? And I came to a decision. I wasn't going to say eight because then people have eight children. Where are they all and all that? And it took me a long time to be able to say four, but I did disconnect and say, those were babies. Those were different. I have four children. But after Yossi died, there was no way I wasn't going to count Yossi. Yossi was 23. And I could just hear him. What do you mean you didn't count me? You know, he would be furious at me. So it sounds like a small thing. And I don't know why, why people feel they need to ask that. But those kind of things will throw me as much as I can try to prepare. And I have to take a deep breath. And it happens a lot. Yumtiv triggers. And each time it happens, I just say, take a moment. And I remind myself of important things. So I do both. There's a very real thing of you're a bereaved mom. You don't have to be in the front row at every chuppah when you don't have a son. You know, you don't have to be always there. Right. I missed my own brother's, my own sister's wedding. It was the year of Yossi's death. And I just couldn't do a chasana. And I knew that if I came, it would be all about me. And I'm close with them. I couldn't believe that I missed my own last two siblings' weddings, but I did. So there's a part of me that says, okay, you can give yourself the space. I try to do that. And then there's the part that says, neshama, and Yossi's still connected. I've done things first, neshama. The book was very important to me because it gave me a chance to make something in this world that you can hold and say, Yosef Kreiman lived. So there's both. And that's more of a spiritual connection now. So I really do both at the same time. There's no other way. Well, I love your answer. I also love how you pinpointed that because you give yourself the space to grieve, you're also able to experience what you feel might be even more joy than the average person because you've experienced that deep pain and suffering and continue to experience it. Yeah, I'm sure of it. I remember when my brachalei was born, we were like that the level of appreciation that we should have it for every child. You know, generally when you hear people talk very deeply about appreciation, it's when there was a loss or a fear of a loss and then there was a recovery and they're so grateful. Now I can see when I couldn't or whatever it is. My joy when she was born, I remember that she was discharged before me. The doctors checked her and then a whole team from the NICU came to look and then they said, she's okay. I had some complications so they wanted to keep me. But I happened to have had a friend who came to visit to see this miracle baby. And she has her own kids. And I asked her, it was my friend Esther. I said, do you have a car seat in your car? And she said, yes. So I told the nurse, I'm leaving. My baby's clear to go. And she was like, you're not ready yet. I said, I'm leaving. She says, okay, at least wait for a wheelchair. I didn't wait for no wheelchair. I picked up my miracle in my arms and I walked out of that yeah. hospital and I put my baby in my friend's car and the whole way home, she was crying because she was hungry. I was such a rush to go. I kept turning around. I kept expecting somebody to chase us and say, one minute, where are you going with that baby? I couldn't believe that they let me keep her. We should have that feeling every time we have a child. Hashem, you've given me a little person. I'm responsible for their body and their upbringing and their emotional well-being. You trust me. That's profound, overwhelmed sense of, wow, thank you. We should have it every time we hold a healthy child. And here, 
It took the loss. You think it passes? She's 26, Kanaina Hara. I'm still, I remember telling her she was literally, that's a pretty low bar for you. You just have to breathe because the babies didn't mm. breathe. But it's not really true. And the truth is that, you know, this appreciation, it's something that it does come very often with loss. And you hear people who are going through terrible things speak of it. I never really understood it until she was born. And I understand it now with my grandchildren. Yossi's loss also gave us this, you just look at the world differently. I'm so grateful for my husband. And my friends and, you know, of course, my children, my own health, we're not flip about things anymore. And so in a way, life becomes of a higher quality. I'm not saying it's worth it, <laughs> but the no. bottom line is once it happened, there was definitely that besides all the high awareness of, of spiritual and all that, which is, you know, you have to fight to attain it. And it's a minute by minute I have to remind myself, but there is also a very real appreciation. I think I laugh more and I think mm. I connect more. Because it's more precious. Yeah. yeah. Ending off, what would be your words of advice to anyone who is seeking to incorporate the ultimate truth of reality that we access through Torah and Hasidus into their lived experience of any type of struggle that they have? So there's the real human experience, there's the ultimate godly reality, and then how what advice would you have for others on how to try to bridge that in their life on a daily basis? Slowly. <laughs> I think that we have to recognize that there aren't these great big revelations that come suddenly and transform us. There are events that are life-changing, and sometimes somebody will say something and a person will change the course of their life because of it. But a lot of the real change, it's like if somebody decides to change the way they're eating and they want to get healthy, that's a beautiful, a very uplifting moment. Or somebody decides to stop doing something they're addicted to, beautiful. But where is it really? It's in the gritty work of every time they pass the fridge or the place where they have access to whatever it is. So for me, it's really about that. It's like, you know, we always talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. There will be a light at the end of the tunnel. At the end of Gullus, we'll have a light and we'll understand. And I'm going to be a very busy mom because I'm going to have four babies and a Yossi to catch up with. So we all know it's going to be there. We'll understand why we needed to have all this. But right now we're in the tunnel. We need light in the tunnel. And in right. the tunnel... It's not coming from somewhere else. We have to create it. So I think that the answer would be, first of all, we have to learn. I did have a background in chassidus to fall into. When we learn about neshama and we learn about purpose and we learn about Hashem being only good, revealed good versus hidden good, when we learn those concepts, that's the first step. You have to know what it is that you're working towards. It doesn't have to be books and books and books and books, but there has to be a truth that we're reaching for. And once we have that, we understand why are we in this world and how do we connect to Hashem and what are we supposed to be doing? Once you have that, then you think of it as I'm creating a little bit of light. Today, I may not be feeling so appreciative, but I can at least be grateful. I have food. I can make a bracha with appreciation. Today, I'm not feeling so happy, but at least I can smile to my husband and he doesn't have to go around the whole day not only worrying about everything he has on his plate, but also that his wife is having a hard time. I could do a little bit, a little bit. A little bit. And it's just little lights that we create every time we make a very small effort. I love that visual of the light in the tunnel. It's like, yes, there's light at the end of the tunnel and you can visualize that in your head, but also create the small lights inside of the actual tunnel that you are in. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your experience. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Elokai zakinina betoratcha urim betotecha 
מחברת נשמתי תמיד אליך. מחבר, מחבר. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.